All right, so it's Bank Holiday Monday. It's a really beautiful afternoon. There's a picnic happening just down the road, and you've all come to learn how to have fun. <laughs> My word, you need help. Um, let's just have a game of Twister. No, not really. Uh, yeah, the theology of play. So I really wrote this seminar for myself because I, I'm, um, I struggle to uh, chill out. And I, I can be a bit of a workaholic, and I can be someone who certainly sees things um, on the basis of their function, rather than on the basis of their beauty or anything like that. And I think that I, I struggle at times to switch off. And so it may be that you're here and you have a great, you know, you have no difficulty sort of just relaxing, having time off, going on holiday, uh, all of that. But there are others of us here that maybe we feel, we feel a little bit guilty and we feel, uh, actually out of interest, who here you say you're pretty good at just chilling out, kicking back and enjoying life? Give me a wave. And who, who, who's the other category? You say you find it really difficult and you always feel guilty. All right, so cool. Um, well, I wrote it for me because I, I fall into that category. And I've been thinking for a while now about whether or not it's okay to actually enjoy yourself. And I want to suggest in this seminar that it is. And uh, tomorrow morning I'm going to look at, I was going to do a seminar on it, but it turns out I'm going to be doing it tomorrow morning in the meeting. Uh, something to do with work and the theology of work and that God values work. So you have to hear this in the context of it's one side of a coin. It's not that, that we're to just go out and just spend the rest of our lives doing whatever the heck we want. Um, but actually there is a place for play. And so what is play is the place to start when we're looking at theology of it. Well, how would we define play? And basically play is something that doesn't have a meaning beyond itself. Is something that's unnecessary. So it's not a means to an end. It's just something that you're doing because you enjoy it. And that's because it's fun. Full stop. So there's one philosopher who defines play as a free activity standing quite consciously outside ordinary life as being not serious, but at the same time absorbing the player intensely and utterly. So it's this thing that is outside of, it doesn't have a point on one level. You can, you can do it, but really at the end of play you haven't produced anything. You, it's not to say it's without meaning. It's not to say it doesn't have a meaning, but it's not necessary. So I don't know how many people regularly attend football matches. Anyone here do that? But a few of you. So I don't actually support a football team, but when I did my gap year, I ended up living with this guy who supported uh, QPR, very tragically. And... He, oh, we've got a second fan there. So he, um, anyway, I remember going to watch a QPR match with him. This is the first football match I'd ever really watched live. And the only football that I'd seen up until that point is big games that, you know, everyone watches like international fixtures or Man United versus Chelsea, which is happening later and all of that. So the only football I'd seen have been the top players. And I remember watching QPR against this other team whose name I forget now, it began with G. And I just couldn't, rem I, I couldn't um, get over how bad it was. Because basically we were there and it was like one guy just booted it up the pitch and everybody else on the pitch ran after it. And then there was a guy at the other end who kicked it right back down and everyone else ran after that. And even though, what, I, what surprised me was even though the, the, the standard of football was actually really bad, I was absolutely going for it. I was there in the crowd. I didn't even support QPR, but I was, for that day, I became a complete QPR nutcase. And there were all these people around me shouting and like effing and blinding and all of that. And I tried not to say effing blind, but I was having a go at the referee and I was like, I really went for it. And at the end of, at the end of that football match, nothing had been achieved. You know, it was, it was, I mean, it was made worse by the fact it was a 1-1 draw. But at the end of that, all that had happened is they kicked this little leather ball thing from up and down a pitch, all these people, and loads of people had stood around and they shouted their heads off and then we all went home. And it was a giant waste of time on one level. There was nothing produced. It was a waste of money on another level. It cost a lot of people a lot of money. It was a total waste. It was unnecessary in that sense. It doesn't mean it's not without meaning, but it was a waste. And that's an example of what play is. And we understand that if you were to see two guys sitting together on a PS3 playing FIFA or something, you know, to say if you suggest it's meaningless to them, they will probably punch you in the face. But of course it's not necessary, is it? Of course it's not necessary. That's, that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about play. It's these things that are uh, fun, but they're not necessary. So another person says, a characteristic of play is that it creates no wealth or goods, thus differing from work or art. At the end of the game, all can and must start over again at the same point. 
Nothing has been harvested or manufactured. No masterpiece has been created. No capital has been accrued. Play is an occasion of pure waste. Waste of time, energy, ingenuity, skill, and often money. And so the question is, in a world full of brokenness, and a world that is on one level going to hell, what right have we to waste time, money, energy on something that is not necessary? And uh, where do we go from there? So that's the kind of question we're going to be trying to answer. And the place to start, I'm going to kind of look at God to begin with and make some observations about God. And then I'll hopefully towards the end we'll become a little bit more practical. But um, the place to start is to look at God and look at what God is like. And the world that he's made. And the first thing, the first thing that we observe, and it's not a, you know, everyone spotted it, is God made something. And he made it out of nothing. And it's not just that God made a material world out of there being no thing. It's not just that there were no things. It's that there was no need. God didn't need to make a world. He chose to do it. It wasn't necessary that he made a world. He chose to do it. So God actually, in the beginning, decided to do something that wasn't necessary. That wasn't necessarily a function that he had to complete it. So that in itself tells us something to begin with. So he didn't make the world because he was bored, because he was lonely, because he needed friends, he was nothing to do in eternity. He chose to do it simply because he wanted to. In itself, that begins to give us a clue that it's okay to choose to do things simply because we would want to, not because we always need to. Secondly, um, talking about creation, matter matters. The material world matters. God seems to like physical, the physical world. And there's this uh, theologian and food critic uh, called Robert Farah Kappen who says this. Let me tell you why God made the world. One afternoon before anything was made, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit sat around in the unity of their Godhead, discussing one of the Father's fixations. From all eternity, it seems, he had this thing about being. He would keep thinking up all kinds of unnecessary things, new ways of being and new things to be. As the, and as they talked, God the Son suddenly said, because he was very posh, he said it like this, really, this is an absolutely great stuff. Why don't I go out and mix us up a batch? And then God, the Holy Spirit said, terrific, I'll help you. So they all pitched in, and after supper that night, the Son and the Holy Spirit put on this tremendous show of being for the Father. It was full of water and lights and frogs. Pine cones kept dropping all over the place, and crazy fish swam around in the wine glasses. There were mushrooms, grapes, horseradishes, and tigers. Men and women everywhere to taste them, juggle them, join them, and love them. And God the Father looked at the whole wild party and said, wonderful, just what I had in mind. And so God has got a thing about being, about matter. And sometimes one of the reasons we have in our um, minds this thing of, okay, it's not, it's not okay for me to play. It's not okay for me to start having fun. is because we, we're living in something that's called dualism. And we have a separation in our heads between things that are spiritual and things that are material. And we think that things that are spiritual are good and things that are material are maybe not so good and not really, not really up there. That's not from the Bible. That's from Greek philosophy. So one of the reasons we know that God thinks being is good and matter is good is that he said it was. When he made everything, he looked at it all and he said, yeah, that's good. He affirms that. And then secondly, if we need any other reason, it's like he became a person. To have a body is part of what it is to be a a person. He took on flesh. And it's not one of the things that blows my mind about Jesus is not just that he took on a body for 30 years and then he died on a cross and that was it. It's that he got resurrected with a body too. And he's going to have a body now for the whole of eternity. So clearly, God has a thing about matter. He has a thing about being. Something is not wrong and it's not sinful simply because it's, it's a physical thing that we're doing or we enjoy. All right, so God's got a thing about matter, matter matters. Having said that, there's a, there's a, we can take it further and we can make the point that it's not just that God made a world, it's that he made a beautiful world. Didn't he? Did a pretty good job. 
And some of my favorite, you know, memories over the years have been when I've been walking around his world. I remember once when I was in the Grand Canyon, and uh, I went there with Mike, and uh, we were walking down the Grand Canyon, and he got a little bit tired after a few minutes. <laughs> so, um, you think I'm joking? And, and, and so he turned around, he turned around, got, I think we maybe got a couple of miles, I don't know. He turned around, and he came, he started to kind of walk back up. And so I decided I want to try and get to the bottom and back up to the top before he made it back up to the top. That was my little competition with him. So I started to kind of jog down the Grand Canyon. I had my iPod headphones in, and I remember sticking, sticking them in and just kind of jogging down there. And then when you get to the bottom, it's this wide, flat sort of area, the place I was anyway, and it's just this, there was this burning blue sky, and the sun was there, and it was really, really hot. And I remember um, listening to music and then pausing the music. And then when I paused the music at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, what I heard was... Just this heavy, wonderful stillness as I sat there. And it was amazing. I remember another time when I was, um, I was fortunate enough to get to go to the Amazon. And we were in the Amazon rainforest. And I remember just having this really surreal experience where I was pinching myself. I was like, I can't believe I'm here. I was sitting in this little boat on the Amazon River. And on the one hand, there was the sun setting. This brilliant sort of... Um, orange sky and the, the, the jungle was silhouetted and on the other hand there was this beautiful orange moon that was rising and then you sat there in the stillness and all you could hear was this, just these crazy jungle sounds. One of, my, one of my favorite times of the year is when summer starts because then you get the barbecue out. I drag the barbecue out and burn the mold off and then um, start to cook. And I'm, I have this really small garden in Watford because our house is just a terrace house. So we have this little sort of postage stamp sized garden, but it's ours. And I, I, I love sort of sitting out the back there and getting the barbecue on and just sort of, even if it's cold, I'll get it out sometimes. And I'll just put a couple of pieces of chicken on there and you just stand there. And I remember a little while ago standing under the stars. You can see about one star in Watford, but it was a very nice one. And standing under the star and, and, and hearing the sort of the crack and the sizzle of the chicken as it was cooking and just thinking, yes, this is living. And uh, the reason I have this little happy digression is because I'm trying to make a point, which is God didn't just make a functional world. He made a world that's unnecessarily beautiful. He made a world that's more delicious than it needs to be. And um, John Piper talks a little bit about this. And he says, he, the, he talks about this time where he was just kind of sitting reading um, National Geographic. I think he's got a very exciting life. And he was there reading National Geographic. And one of the things that he discovered was there was this little water spider that was in the, um, the magazine. And he said, they've just discovered this water spider. And what it does, the way that it lives is it sort of floats around on the surface of the water. And then it kind of does a little somersault and it catches a bubble of air. And then it sinks down to the bottom. It swims down to the bottom of the pond. And it traps under a silken web this little bit of, air, this little bit of air. And then it floats back up to the surface and it does the same thing. And it does it over and over again. To, it has this little pocket of air down at the bottom of the lake. And then it lives in that and it eats in that and it mates in that. And that's what it does thing. And John, John Piper said, I read that and I was just totally blown away. And he said, at that point, I sat on my sofa and I, I kind of worshipped God. I looked at God and said, God, you're amazing. And I felt like he said back to me, yes, John. And I have been enjoying that little piece of art since before the days of Abraham. And if only you knew how many millions of other wonders there are beyond your sight that I behold with gladness every day. When you look up at the stars, you see just a fraction of them. There are a million galaxies that we can't see with the naked eye. And so when the psalmist says, lift your eyes up and look to the heavens, who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and might and strength. Not one of them is missing. That's Isaiah, sorry, not a psalmist. Not one of these things is missing. When he looked up, he could barely see it. He was just seeing a tiny bit of it. There was a whole load of it that only God could see. There's a whole load of beauty that only God can see. And actually God says this to Job. He says, have you journeyed in the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorms to water a land where no man lives and a desert with no one in it? Have you ever wondered why he bothers to make a flower that no one ever sees? you ever considered why there would be incredibly beautiful star formations that we will never glimpse? Because he likes beauty. Because he enjoys it. He just does it because he enjoys it. And so it's not just that God made a world. It's that he made a beautiful world. 
And one of the things that, again, that should begin to educate us with is the fact that beauty is a good thing. Creativity for the sake of creativity, beauty for the sake of beauty, is a God-like thing. And there's no people who have got this more wrong than the Puritans in the history of the church. And the Puritans started from a good place. They wanted to make church about God and not about comfort and all of that sort of stuff. But the way that they went about it is they designed these buildings that were really, 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 really boring. And then they put hardwood and pews in them that were really uncomfortable. And they thought that way people will only come to church because God is there. And the thing that just baffles me about that is, okay... So you thought it would be great to make a building that's really, really dull. Have you seen the building that God made? Have you seen it? Have you looked around at it? Have you seen all the color and the lights and everything from the greatness to the small things and the glory and the delicacy of them? Don't you think that a God who made that would have some value and some appreciation for beauty for his own sake? They missed the point. So... um, If you were to see my two houses before and after I got married, I said a little bit about this this morning, but before I got married, when I lived with Paddy, our house was a student house. Any students here? Yes. So I'm not saying all of you live like this, but probably most of you do. And it was, you know, we we had a living room, but we basically didn't have anything in it apart from this old sofa that we got from someone else and this giant TV that was about this deep. And that's, that's all we had. And then we had a kitchen, and then we had our bedrooms. And we basically lived in our kitchen and in our bedrooms, and occasionally we would go into the living room. But also we had a fridge, which we for some reason kept in front of the door of the living room. So every time we had to go through it, we had to move the fridge. And it was a bit of a, it was a, bit of a hole, <laughs> to be honest. And now, if you were to come to my house now, there's all this incredibly beautiful stuff around. There's, you know, there's Beth, one of the things she loves to do is because she's creative, she loves to make things. So she makes furniture. So she's reupholstered this chair and... I like whiskey, so she's made me this whiskey cabinet out of an old pallet, and she's just made this concrete table thing for the garden, and she's doing all stuff like that. And it's like, actually, in that sense, and on one level, there's no function, there's no purpose to it, or that you could at least make a table that doesn't take anywhere near as long as it took her to make that one um, in the middle of our living room for two weeks. But, but she went for it, and she went for it and made something beautiful. And the point I'm trying to make over and over again is that God made a beautiful world. So beauty is part of it. Beautiful clothes are not a sin. Beautiful music is not bad. Beautiful writing and books and, you know, things that capture our attention, our imagination, they're all flowing from the heart of the fact that God is creative and he makes things unnecessarily wonderfully. And further to that, you can also see the fact that if if you look at something like food, again, it's like God makes the world more delicious than he needs to. A God who's just all about function doesn't need to make fillet steak or ice cream or Ben and Jerry's or bonbons or whiskey or wine. But he makes all of these. And again, uh, in Psalm 104, the psalmist says, God makes the grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate. He brings forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. So, I don't think it's in God's nature to make something that is purely functional. He's too imaginative for that. And then finally, uh, as we look at God, the other thing, the other observation I would make, and it's important to make in the theology of play, is that God is the most joyful being that there has ever been and will ever be. And people often misunderstand this because they look at his followers, you know, and they look at us and they see that we're really boring and sometimes we can be uh, defensive and judgmental and grim and therefore they therefore think that God can be like that and that's just not the reality C.S. Lewis says joy is the serious business of heaven G.K. Chesterton talking of Jesus says um, you know in Jesus you see this guy that seems to have a lot of fun and it's true it's like Jesus would often mess around with his disciples so there are these wonderful moments in the Bible and the best bits in the Bible are usually the bits in brackets and there's this great bit where uh, Mike talked about it at Soul Survivor but the feeding of the 5,000 and it's like you know they all go up to Jesus and say look we should send all these people away because we can't afford to feed them and Jesus says to them you feed them And then it says in brackets, he said this to test them because he already knew what he was going to do. And so they all turn to each other, we can't feed them, how can we feed them? And Jesus is just there, he's messing around with them, he's playing with them. And you see, I think you see that aspect of Jesus coming out most clearly after the resurrection. After the resurrection, it's like, it almost seems like Jesus has had this weight lifted. He must have felt the pain and the, you know, the burden of everything that was going to happen at the cross. And after it, it's like he just is having some fun, isn't he? So the road to Emmaus, don't you just love that story? They're there, walking along 
along, and then Jesus sort of appears, and he says, oh, why are you guys so down? And they're like, oh, well, haven't you heard? Jesus is dead. And Jesus says to them, is he? Is he really? Tell me. Tell me. What's happened? And they're like, well, and they spend, you know, a few minutes telling Jesus why he's dead. And then they walk along for seven miles, and Jesus begins to kind of explain to them from the scriptures that this was going to happen, and blah, 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 blah. And then the bit, my favorite bit is where it gets to the bit where they actually arrive at their house. And Jesus, it literally says, Jesus acted like he was going further. So Jesus was like, oh my word, I really can't stay here. I've got to go on to this other place that doesn't actually exist, but I'm just pretending here, even though I'm God, I'm pretending that I'm leaving. And they're like, no, 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 come in, come in. He's like, well, I've really got to be going. No, no, come in. Oh, okay, if you insist, here I come. And he walks in, and then it's like the grand reveal. The grand reveal is when he breaks the bread, and at that point, he disappears. So it's like, boom, and they're just left like, oh my word, it was Jesus. And you could just imagine the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is really going to like, they're really going to like this one. Having a little chuckle. And again, you see it with the disciples in, in um, the Sea of Galilee where Jesus stands on the shore. And do you remember that miracle? It's like the first miracle was throw your net on the other side. And then he does the same thing. Oi, throw your net on the other side. No, not another one. So then they throw the net on the other side and then they catch it. And it's like, Jesus is just, he's just playing with them. He's playing with them. He's having a little bit of fun. And G.K. Chesterton says that when you meet Jesus in the Bible, one of the things that you see is you see his fury and you see his anger and you see his passion for justice. But he kind of wonders, he says, I kind of wonder whether he hid, whether he had to keep some part of himself concealed. And he says, I think he probably did. And I sometimes fancy that it was his mirth, that it was his joy. And he says, because I don't think we could handle the joy that we're going to get in heaven. And the way that he phrases it is that we as human beings sit alone in a starry chamber of silence while the laughter of heaven is too loud for us to hear. God is the most joyful being in the universe. And so that surely should imply that he would enjoy a game of Twister. The situation that we find ourselves in, if having a look at God, let's look at the culture for a little bit. The situation that we find ourselves in the West and in the UK is that work is all-consuming often. And that um, people in our, in our culture are, are wealthy materially, and, um, but they're poor in time. They don't have very much time. And uh, there's this dog-eat-dog world. And so we just had, just in the news recently, there was a tragedy with the intern at Merrill Lynch, I think it was, Bank, um, that died. And there have been other stories about that, about all these people that have somehow, they've, they've struggled and they're just obsessed with getting busier. And um, it used to be, you know, back in the day, that you would have more of a rhythm of life because you didn't have all the electronic gadgets that we have today that mean we can keep working 24-7. It's not just when the sun sets, we can work all hours. And so many of us find ourselves, and we also have this kind of Protestant work ethic, many of us that have grown up in the UK, where we feel like, as I was saying the other day, you know, I, I need to be successful. I need to make a name for myself. I need to achieve things. If I don't, I won't be loved. If I don't, I won't get there. And there's this, this thing that drives us that often is fear. And certainly many of the people around us, I think, are driven by that. So, um, if that's some of the stuff that we struggle with, how can we try and be corrected by that? How can the Bible try and correct us? How does it kind of uh, steer us back towards what a more biblical practice is? And the biblical view is usually the paradox. It's usually a tension. And so it will be a mistake for us either to become dropouts and spend the rest of our lives traveling, even if we could afford that. But it would also be a mistake for us to become workaholics. The tension is found in the middle of the two and in balancing them. And so I want to suggest three disciplines <clears throat> that if you are a workaholic, uh, you will find may be helpful. And the first one um, is the discipline of the Sabbath, the Sabbath rest. So as I'll say tomorrow morning, God values work and he himself works, but he also has a day off. Ever wondered why God needs a day off? Was he tired? God doesn't get tired. God never gets tired. He just took a day off. There wasn't, it wasn't necessary he just took one. And uh, he made us, if you look in the Genesis account, on the sixth day. And so what that means is, the first day we were around was a day off. 
If he made us on the fourth day, we probably would have tried to help him with the rest of creation. So he saves us to the end, and he makes us on the sixth day. And that means the first day that we have is this day of rest. And if you look at the order in the Genesis account, the way that the Hebrew uh, scriptures order time is not morning and evening. So actually, in Genesis 1, what it says is, it was evening, and then it was morning, the first day. It was evening, and then it was morning, the second day. So it starts with sleeping. It starts with evening. It starts with rest. And so um, in a culture that struggles to slow down, that's something that has to be speaking to us really, really clearly. And one of the reasons we struggle to slow down is because we're used to a fast-paced life, aren't we? So everything now is designed so that you can have it fast. The reason we eat so many McDonald's is not because McDonald's is the tastiest food. It's because it is fast food. You know, you can get Netflix and everything like that now, so you can download a movie instantly. You can download music when you're on a web page. If it takes more than five seconds, it's like, oh my word, what the heck is wrong with this connection? You know, they're always trying to get faster broadband. So everything about our lives is geared towards making it faster and faster and faster and faster. Faster and faster. And the Sabbath says, whoa, you just need to slow down. And John Ortberg um, talks about this thing in his book, The Life I've Always Wanted, The Life You've Always Wanted. He talks about this thing, hurry sickness. Okay? And he says, this is how you know you've got hurry sickness. So listen up, because I reckon some of us here might have it. He says, we have hurry sickness when we are haunted by the fear that there are not enough hours in the day to do what needs to be done. We will read faster, talk faster, and when listening, nod faster to encourage the talker to accelerate. We will find ourselves, some of you do that, we will find ourselves chafing whenever we have to wait. At traffic lights, if there are two lanes and each contains one car, we will find ourselves guessing, based on the year, make, and model of each car, which one will pull away fastest. At a supermarket, if we have a choice between two checkout lines, we find ourselves counting how many people are in each line and multiplying this number by the number of items in their trolley. If we have a really bad case of hurry sickness, then even after we get in the line, we keep track of the person who would have been me in the other line. If we get through and the person who would have been me is still waiting, we are elated. We've won. But if the alter me is walking out of the store and we're still in line, we feel depressed. We have hurry sickness. And he says other things like, people with hurry sickness buy time-saving gadgets and then have neither the time nor the patience to read the instructions to figure out how to use them. And um, this is a serious thing. And although we might feel like, okay, well, this is just, you know, it's all just part of the culture. It's actually having an effect on people and it's having an effect on families in all sorts of ways. So there was an article on the BBC News website about a year ago, I think it was, that talked about how there's this survey being done and teenagers in the UK are some of the most miserable teenagers in the whole of Europe. And the reason this article said for that is because what happens is parents in the UK give their kids stuff when in fact what they want is time. They want time. And if we struggle with hurry sickness, and I certainly do, one of the things that you will find is difficult is loving people. Because in my experience, that usually requires time. And um, so the solution to that is the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is not a uh, law, well it is a law, it's in the Ten Commandments, but it's not intended to be law as we understand law. It's the thing that Mike said on the main stage the other day, it's like, these people were, get, were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, so they never had time off. And when they came out of Egypt, God said, you must have a day off, you must have some time of rest. And that's what he says to us, so he says, hey, take some time off, take some time to chill. And... Um, the reason for it is not simply because, and this is how I justify it as a workaholic, I think, I will be able to work better if I am more rested. Therefore, I will take time off. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that on one level, but God didn't do it. God didn't have a Sabbath because he would then work better. He just did it because he wanted to, because he wanted to kick back and enjoy the world that he was living in. So, um, one benefit of the Sabbath, when we do take it eventually, is that it opens us up to hear from God more. That's what I find anyway. And um, the last kind of six months for us at Soul Survivor have been really difficult and really busy because we've had um, many people in our church very ill and we've had all sorts of pastoral problems. So I haven't really had very, and I've also been trying to finish um, 
my vicar training stuff, MA. So I haven't had really very much time at all to chill out. And Mike and I had booked in the diary to go just before Solsvive Race started to take a few days off to go and climb Ben Nevis um, up in Scotland because I've always wanted to do that and we've never done it. And only Mike could ever work it, so it happened like this. But instead of going to climb Ben Nevis, he managed to convince me that we should go to a spa. <laughs> so, <laughs> for, uh, seriously, he's such a salesman. Like, for two or three days, Beth, Mike, and I all went to this spa outside of Watford, and we just spent some time. We ate some great food. We, um, we kind of, I went to the gym, and they went and had massages and all of that, and, um, you know, we had a really great time. And in that time, up until that point, I had just been going for it. And I hadn't had any time to stop and think. I hadn't really had proper time off. And just because of the circumstances. And I was just, I didn't really spend loads of time praying and reading my Bible at that point. I was, I was there just to, just to rest. But there was one point where I just, for, I had 15 minutes or something in the room that we were staying in. Um, to myself, and I remember just picking up my Bible and opening it up to 1 Peter chapter 5. And there were these verses in 1 Peter 5 that just really, you know how verses sometimes jump out at you? These verses really jumped off the page and they really spoke to me. And I just felt, just for a few moments, just the real affirmation of God in that. And He just said, Hey, Andy, these are going to be verses for you in the next month, which is going to be the festivals and it's going to be busy and hard. These are verses that I want you to hold on to. And for me, in the last month, I have read them most days. And I've come back to them most days because I need them. But I don't think if I hadn't slowed down and gone to the spa, I'm not sure I would have heard him. And there's something about slowing that helps us to come back into a place of perspective and back into a place of understanding who we are as people. Hurry produces superficiality. You want to be shallow? Keep being busy. Because it actually takes time to stop and to think and to digest the world around us. Instead of Abraham Lincoln, his biographers often say, one of the things that's notable about Lincoln is not that he read a lot, because he actually didn't have access to that many books in the early days, it's that he thought a lot about what he read. So one of his biographers says, Lincoln read less and thought more than any man in America. Something about that produces depth. Lincoln himself described his mind like a piece of steel. And he said, it takes me a very long time to scratch anything onto it, but once it's on, it usually doesn't come off again. And actually stopping and thinking and pausing and waiting and being allows truth to sink in, in a way that rushing never does. And again, to quote John Ortberg, he says, Today, we have largely traded wisdom for information. We have exchanged depth for breadth. We want to microwave maturity. We want instant wisdom, instant maturity, don't we? And for many of us, our danger is not that we're going to renounce our faith. For many of us, the danger is we're going to settle for less. And we're going to get caught up so much in the hurriedness and the busyness of life that we lose, we lose where we are with God and we lose our direction, we lose our priorities and we, we end up walking down paths that we don't realise. And there's that old, that old kind of picture of like, if you want to boil a frog, what you don't do is chuck the frog in boiling water because it just jumps out again. The way that you boil a frog is you boil the water slowly and gradually, as it heats up, the frog doesn't notice. And for many of us, in a such a rushed, busy life, what can happen is we're boiling slowly without realising it, we're slowly drifting from some of the things that God has called us to. And so this practice of weekly taking time out, weekly slowing down can be a good thing. And the other thing that I think I, I would encourage you to do if you find yourself with a bad case of hurry sickness is find ways of deliberately for the next little while slowing down. Um, there are lots of things you could do for that. Take time over a meal. Join the slowest queue in the supermarket. Drive behind old people. <laughs> but find ways to slow down. Pete Gregg uh, from 24-7 Prayer talks about his retreat day. He says about once a month he has a retreat day where he just goes and he, he hangs out. And the way that he does it, I love it, I think it's a great idea, is he says, I am... Um, I drop my kids off at school and then I head out and I go for a walk in the countryside near where I live. And I walk for about two hours and I come to this country pub. And I sit down in this country pub and I read a, a Christian book about like a biography or something like that. I have a pint, I have a nice meal. And then I get up from that and I walk back for a couple of hours and usually get back just in time to pick my kids up. 
And he says, often on the way to the pub, as I'm walking through the countryside, my conversation with God is quite stilted. You know, it's quite stop-start. But he says, on the way back, usually we can't stop talking to each other. Usually it flows. And so find ways to put in your life, in your schedule, time where you just Sabbath, where you rest. And my, the, the, the most practical thing that anyone's ever said to me on this, on taking time off, is because my diary is all over the place because I don't have a regular hours or anything like that, it becomes harder. But the most practical thing anyone, anyone ever said to me is block time out. You know, go through your diary and block the time out and then cram in as much as you want to around that. So I, I actually think that's a helpful way to do it. Anyway, so first discipline, take a Sabbath. Second discipline, discipline of joy, the discipline of joy. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter four, verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And those of us who tend to be workaholics, we tend to be quite serious people. We don't like frivolity. We don't like shenanigans. There are too many things to do. There are things to achieve today. I have to tick off my goals. And so we don't have time to waste on actually rejoicing. Um, and yet St. Augustine, who's one of the greatest theologians in ever, really, he said, a Christian should be an alleluia from head to foot. I quite like that. A Christian should be an alleluia from head to foot. Now, what sort of joy are we talking about here? I'm not talking about super spiritual joy that is so deep your face never finds out about it. I'm talking about actual joy. Do you remember that? Where it's like you laugh from the belly to your, to your belly hurts and you genuinely just crack up and you enjoy life. And sometimes what we can fear and what we can think is, Okay, well, how can I laugh? How can I be glad when there's so much pain and there's so much suffering in the world? It would be wrong to enjoy life. But the answer surely has to be, how can we survive without joy in the midst of all of this pain? And as I've gone and uh, lived life, what I've noticed, you may have found the same thing, is actually often it's the people who are closest to suffering, the people who are closest to pain, that have the most joy. If you go to develop, less developed countries, one of the things that's notable is the amount of joy that they have. I, I remember there's a lady that I know called Joy, appropriately. And she works for an orphanage in India, and she set it all up, and she absolutely slogs her guts out every single day to give these kids the best. And yet, there's this, there's this thing that radiates out of her. It's said of Mother Teresa, and certainly if you read any books that are about her or written by her, one of the things that always comes across is that she, she glowed. Mother Teresa glowed, even in the midst of all the pain that she saw. I have a little quote on my phone that's on the front page of my, of my phone that is a Mother Teresa quote. And she says, uh, her motto was a hearty yes to God and a big smile to all. A hearty yes to God and a big smile to all. And uh, I remember God began to teach me about this a little while ago. And it was actually, there was a guy called David Pitchers who, um, who's in our church, really wise old man. And I went up to him one day and said, hey, David, have you got any advice for, uh, you know, me and leadership and stuff like that? I just really want to learn. And he said, yes, you need to smile more. <laughs> you need to smile more. And so I wrote that on my phone and I fully intended to smile more. I made it one of my goals in the day. Uh, as a workaholic would. And, um, and then I remember Soul Survivor, this young person came up to me with a, a she said, I, uh, she was a bit embarrassed and she said, I, uh, you know, I feel like I've got a word for you and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, all right, okay, really, what, what is it? And she said, you need to remember to smile. And I really felt like God's been challenging me on that. And, and again, it's this thing of actually choosing to do it is, is part of what it is to, to celebrate and to have the discipline of joy. Sometimes it's a choice. And what we can think is discipline involves abstaining from things. Discipline involves I will not go there, I will fast from this and I will fast from that. But also there's a real sense in the Bible that, that discipline also involves choosing to party. It also involves choosing to let your hair down. So Israel were commanded three times a year to, to get together and to have an absolute humdinger. And they were to get together and to celebrate. That was part of, what they were, that was part of the rhythm of their life, was this choice to uh, enjoy God. So Nehemiah, in um, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, says, This day is holy to the Lord your God. And that's where we get our word holiday from. Holy day. It literally comes from holy day, which means to take time off and enjoy. This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions of them to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
The joy of the Lord is your strength. Do you know what? That's so true. People have got this fierce joy. They have a strength about them. Often joy can be the motor that keeps you going. And sometimes if you just keep hammering away and you keep working hard, working hard, working hard, but you don't allow yourself to choose to rejoice and to choose to enjoy, then you die. You don't last very long. You go mad. You go mental. And um, one of the things that... uh, Again, John Ortberg says, is, we go to school and we think we will be happy when we finish. We are single and we will get convinced that we will be happy when we get married. We get married and think we'll be happy when we have children. We have children and decide we were happier uh, before we got children. And then they leave and we think, no, we were happier when they were here. And it can be part of our lives, again, is, is what we think is, okay, I'll rejoice when this happens. You know, when all the circumstances align, when, when I finally finish my degree, or I finally get that promotion, or I finally get the car, or I finally go on holiday, then I will rejoice. But the truth is, I have found in the people that I know in my life who are real experts at enjoying things, is they always rejoice in spite of. You'll always, always, always have to rejoice in spite of the circumstances. And the test of whether or not it's the biblical joy that I'm talking about is whether it's still there in the midst of the pain. So joy is a discipline, and I think a lot of it is choosing to rejoice. And the other thing I'll say on that is um, if you want to rejoice, you always have to rejoice in this day. So rejoice in this is the day that the Lord has made. I'll rejoice when this happens or when that happens. No, rejoice in this day. That's the only day you can ever rejoice in. And... uh, Discipline number three, I just want to tell a story before I go to the discipline. Um, it's a story that's told by Brennan Manning in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, and it's so bad that I remembered it. And the story goes like this. There is this monk running through the jungle, and as he's running through the jungle, he's being chased by this giant tiger who wants to eat him, and so eventually he comes to this cliff, and he starts climbing down the cliff to get away from the tiger, and he looks down, he's on this sort of thin little vine thing, and he looks down, he sees beneath him that all, these, all these rocks, like thousands of feet below, And so he keeps climbing down, but then what happens is he runs out of vine and he can't go any further. And then the tiger's there at the top of the cliff, and these mice come out of some hole in the cliff, and they start to chew through his vine. And then just at that point, he sees this strawberry plant that is growing on the side of the cliff there. And so he picks a strawberry, he sees a strawberry, he picks a strawberry, and he goes, Yum, that is the best strawberry I've ever eaten in my entire life. That's the story. And the third discipline is named after that wonderfully wonderful story, and it is the discipline of enjoying the strawberry. And what Brennan Manning means by that is he's saying, actually, the monk, in that moment, he could have thought, oh, no, I'm just running away from this tiger thing, or he could have thought, I'm about to fall down into the rocks beneath me. But instead, what he did is he thought, no, I'm just going to eat this strawberry. It looks great. And the point he's saying is, it's the thing of enjoy the present moment. If we want to practice kind of celebration and play, enjoy it in the present moment. You don't have to wait to a day off to actually enjoy play. You can enjoy it now. And I remember when Beth and I were dating, we just started dating, and we didn't know each other very well. And we were dating long distance, and I was walking her back to the train station, and she was about to go on a train, and I wouldn't see her for a few weeks. And I was in a very bad mood because I wanted to hang out with her for longer, and it was bothering me that she was going. So we walked to the train station. I was just really grouchy with her and really grumpy, and she didn't know why. And then she got on the train and said goodbye, and then off she went. And then she phoned me, and she said, why were you so moody? And I said, oh, because I'm really going to miss you. And she was so frustrated by that. And she was like, what on earth were you doing? I was still there while you were moody. Like, be moody after I'm gone, but don't be moody while I'm there. And then she ended up buying me this watch. And she wrote a little note in the watch. And she just said, this is to remind you to live in the present. And for me, that's been an incredibly helpful lesson. It's like, actually, we can be so caught up in the things that we've come from, the things that we've, the, the stuff in our past, or so worried by the things in our future, that we miss the opportunity to simply enjoy the strawberries, to simply enjoy what's going on in the present. And um, again, the people of Israel were very good at not doing this well. So they, they, uh, with the Sabbath, part of the Sabbath when they lived in the wilderness is that God would give them manna. And then for the Sabbath day, he would give them twice the amount. And what would happen is even, even on the Sabbath day, people would go out and try and collect manna. And God had to intervene and say, look, guys, you need to really stop going out to collect manna because I'm going to take care of you. Just enjoy your day. Part of, the, part of the reason many of us find it difficult to enjoy the present moment, this is the truth, this is the reality, is we don't trust him. 
We don't trust him. So we find it hard because we feel like we've got to sort it out. And hear me, Jesus' motto is not, don't worry, be happy. His motto is, don't worry because the Father knows what you need. Don't worry because I've got you. Just relax. I remember um, we were uh, trying to budget one month and we didn't, have, we didn't have a huge amount of money. We had more than enough to live off. We were fine. But we were trying to budget because we wanted to use the money for a few things, uh, give some away and then use it for some other stuff. And it got to towards the end of the month and um, we only had £10 left. And we were, we were going to be fine because we had food in the cupboard and stuff like that. We only had 10 quid left in the bank. And one of my friends was at cell group at our house one night and he asked if I could give him a lift home, which I was very happy to do. But it was like a one and a half hour round trip. So um, we had no petrol in the car. So I drove to the petrol station and I thought, okay, we've only got £10 left, but we'll be fine. So I just put 10 quid in, 10, 10 pounds of petrol in the car and then walked through to the petrol service station. And this has never happened to me before, and it's never happened to me, happened to me since. But at that moment, one other, another guy from my cell group happened to be at the same petrol station, and he came in, and he said, oh, hey, Andy, God just told me to pay for your petrol. At which point, I wish I put 65 quid in the car. <laughs> but I hadn't. So he was very pleased when he found it was only 10 pounds, but he paid for the petrol, and then we went on our way. And I remember one of the things that I just found so wonderful about that is like God really doesn't need to provide very much materially in the sense of like in a miraculous way for Beth and I, because we have more than we need. But uh, the one chance we, he got, he took it. The one chance he got, he used it to really just show, hey, Andy, I, I, you can take, you can, it's okay. Stop trying to be God all the time. Stop trying to carry the burden all the time. You can relax. I'll provide for you. I'll provide what you need. Francis Chan, in one of his talks, uh, actually on joy, he's, he's, he's talking about this whole issue of trust. And he says, imagine you give a job to someone, and someone at work, or let's say you're a student or something, you left something back in a lecture theatre, and you say, look, can you go get this for me? Do you then stop worrying about the thing? Depends on who you've asked to collect it, doesn't it? So for some of your friends, you know, you say, go get this folder from the lecture theatre, and two minutes later, you're going to have to call them up and say, by the way, can you get the folder from the lecture theatre? And then you're going to have to text them, and then you're probably going to have to go get it yourself anyway. But there are other friends that you have, and you say, can you go collect this thing for me? And you know instantly that they're, they're going to do it. You know they're so on it that they're going to do it. So whether or not we worry depends on whether we trust the person that we've asked to do the job. And similarly with God, it's like whether or not we choose to just relax depends on whether or not we choose to trust him, whether or not we choose to relax and trust that he's got these things. And again, it was, um, I don't know, four or five months ago maybe, but I was actually sitting down to write a talk on joy that I had to give on the Sunday. And this was the Friday and it was meant to be a day off and I hadn't had a day off that week. And, and, and so I thought, do you know what? I can't take a day off. The church needs me. I must work really hard. I must spend my entire day off trying to write this talk so it's good. And I need to make sure it's a very happy talk because it's about joy. And I was sitting there uh, that morning praying. And I just felt like God spoke to me. And I just felt like he said to me. And it, you know, it doesn't always happen like this. Sometimes it is. You know, you actually do need to make the sacrifice. But on this one occasion, he, I felt like he said to me really clearly, Andy, go and have a day off and hang out with Beth and spend some time doing what you enjoy. I've got this one. And so I decided to do that, and I ended up having a really nice day off, and then woke up early on Sunday, and the talk usually came together, and it went all right. And sometimes it's actually, it's that thing of, am I going to choose to trust that you're going to carry me? So it's the discipline of enjoying the strawberry, and as part of that, it's trusting him with the future, as well as sometimes the past. And then finally, as we come into land, finding a balance. So um, this is where I want to say, kind of at the end, C.S. Lewis says... There is no use in trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be a purely spiritual creature. That is why he uses material things like bread and wine to put new life in us. We may think this rather crude and unspiritual, but God does not. He invented eating. He likes matter. He invented it. So on the one hand, what I'm trying to say is we need not be more spiritual than God. We, we can enjoy the fact that he made us to rest and that's part of the, the fabric of the world that we live in and part of how he told us to live. But the flip side is, of course, we live in a fallen world. And so the other side of it is play can be fallen. Play can be broken. Play can be not that wholesome. And actually, we can indulge ourselves too much when there is much to be done in the world. And it's finding a balance. And for me, I think the, most, the, 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 the best way of understanding it and the, the art of kind of getting that radical balance in a the theology of play is to understand that the world is good 
it's just not good enough. It's good, but don't just settle for that. The West Wing is good, but it's not good enough. Whatever box set you're into is good, it's just not good enough. And again, C.S. Lewis, if you look at him, he was one of the few people that managed to find this balance uh, and held the tension. And he, he, for me, is one of the big people that's convinced me it's okay to go and have a really great slap-up meal and enjoy it. So uh, Philip Yancey, when he's writing about C.S. Lewis, says, Lewis's appreciation of pleasure as the drippings of grace brings together the visible and invisible worlds. Unlike hermits of the Middle Ages and legalists of modern times, Lewis saw no need to withdraw from the world and shun pleasure. He loved a stiff drink, a puff on the pipe, a gathering of friends, a Shakespeare play, a witty joke. Life's delights are indeed good, just not good enough. Our desires are too small, our vision too limited. I find in Lewis something rarely seen either in secular or sacred society, a delicate balance of embracing the world while not idealizing it. And the art and the trick really is this, is to enjoy the good things that God gives us, but recognize we have a greater joy to enjoy as well, if I can put it like that. And it's, it's the fact that, um, I remember Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion, opens it with a quote from someone, I can't remember his name now. And he says, is it not enough to enjoy that the garden is beautiful without believing that there are fairies at the bottom of it? And I hear the sentiment behind that, but we get, the, we get to answer with this. As Christians, this is the great thing. We get to enjoy a glass of wine and the meaning of life. We get both. The world advertises itself sometimes as, hey, come enjoy yourself. Come live for yourself. Come and have a party. But again, G.K. Chesterton says, joy, which is the small publicity of the pagan, is the giant secret of the Christian. We get to enjoy Ben and Jerry's. We get to enjoy bank holidays. We get to enjoy having time in the sun, chatting with friends, missing out on a picnic for a lecture instead, and, and the meaning of life. We don't just enjoy the small things and the good things that are in the world. We enjoy the broader things of where they came from and the richer things for that. And so a theology of play rests ultimately not on the fact that FIFA is amazing, but on what God is like, and therefore on the fact that it's okay to enjoy the good things that he gives us. And so long as we keep looking at what he's like, and we keep our eyes fixed on him, then we can enjoy the good things that come from him. I hope that makes some sense. Why don't I pray, and then we can go play.